Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going through the book of Psalms this fall. And if you um, didn't know, there's pew kits up here for children. There's also Jesus Storybook Bible. So if uh, you or your child wants to go up and get one, they're, they're right up here. We're looking, obviously, at Psalm 63 this evening. And the title, um, which I'm glad Gracie read the title, um, says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And obviously David didn't write that. That was written after the, the Psalms were compiled by an editor, just to let us know when this was happening. And um, when, if you know your story of David history, um, when was he in the wilderness of Judah? He was actually in the wilderness twice. Uh, he was on the run both times. On the first time he was on the run from King Saul, but almost all uh, commentaries think that this is actually the second time he was in the wilderness, which when he was actually on the run from his own son. If you can imagine that. Um, his, his beloved son Absalom um, actually stole the kingdom from his dad. Uh, Absalom began to hate his dad when his, uh, when his father basically wouldn't um, carry out justice on behalf of their sister. And so Absalom began to despise his father and he began to turn David's people against David and fomented a rebellion. And that's what it's talking about there at the end. Those who seek to destroy my life. That's his own son. Um, He's the one seeking to destroy David's life. So as a result of that, David is fled out into the wilderness like a little little roach. When you go into your kitchen, a little roach runs underneath the the washing machine, the dishwasher. Uh, David is completely humiliated at this point. I mean, he was the king a few days ago, and now he's on the run with a little group of people, uh, a few loyal troops, and that's it, uh, running from his son. And, you know, I get hurt when I come home from work and my, um, my children don't greet me. If I say, you know, hey, I'm, um, I'm home, and, and there's no response, I get a little bit hurt by that. Imagine uh, your child um, taking over your house kicking you out and then hunting you down on the streets. Um, that's about as bad as anything I can imagine. And in this case, it's actually the entire kingdom of, uh, is, of Judah is at stake. So we're also talking about uh, the kingdom of God on earth. And, and yet in that place, which is probably about the worst place he's ever been in his life, it's really fascinating what he um, fixes his mind on. As he's, uh, you can imagine him sitting there in the wilderness in those desolate hills of Judea on the lookout and the watches of the night. He's on the lookout for his son. The watches of the night were several times late in the evening, uh, 3 a.m., 6 a.m. And he says in verse 6, in the watches of the night on my bed, which would have been a bed of like clay or some kind of rock, he is remembering God and he's meditating not so much on the horrible circumstances, which were really terrible, but he's meditating on the, um, the absence of God. It's a strange thing to be thinking about at this moment in his life. But he says, I miss you so much. My, my soul thirsts for you. And then also he says that um, he knows that he will one day be satisfied by God as with fat and rich food. So it's this combination of, uh, on the one hand, he's saying, I'm living in a world that is spiritually as dry and desolate as that uh, awful wilderness in front of me. If you've seen pictures of the hills of Judea, you know what that looks like. So you have 
this kind of dry and weary land, this God-forsaken world we live in. But then in the middle of that, he's saying, he's claiming joy. Um, my soul will be satisfied. Your right hand upholds me. He's even claiming that God uh, is going to destroy those who oppose him. Those who seek to destroy my life will go down to the depths of the earth. And so he's, so, he's confident in God, and he's rejoicing in God. And so I want to look at those two things. It's kind of seemingly very different things. First, the God-forsaken world that we live in, and then finding joy in that God-forsaken world. So, again, he's staring at uh, some of the most barren wilderness on this planet. Just seems like endless hills of rock and dust. There's no vegetation. Uh, there's almost, there are no animals out there, really. A few jackals. And it brings to his mind a deeper barrenness that is in his life, where he says, my flesh is fainting. It's like a very strong word, fainting. It's withering away. I'm about to die without you. You are the air that I breathe, is what he's saying about God. And again, it's really amazing what the psalm is not about. You would think he might be saying, my life is in danger, my kingdom has been stolen by my own son. I am too old to be out here backpacking in the wilderness like this. He's got psalms where he talks like that, but in this psalm, He's not complaining about his circumstances. He's groaning for the lack of God in his life. My soul thirsts for you. And what he's saying about us um, is very important. What he's saying about us is that no matter um, how bad your life is going or how good your life is going right now, the worst thing you've got going in your life is, is not anything with your family, however messed up it is. It's not to do with any health problems you have. Or problems at work. David had health problems. He had a messed up family. His work, major problems. He had no job. He, um, he was lonely. But all those things, your loneliness, your work, your family, your, um, your whatever, your health. The worst problem in your life right now is the absence of God in your life. And we, we rarely think about things like that. The main cause of your loneliness is the absence of God. Because the Bible says... Uh, from the beginning to the end, this is a dry and weary land where there is no water. And this is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, if you don't believe in, um, in any major ca- catastrophe, uh, which Christians have always called the fall, uh, the fall of the human race, if you don't believe in a fall like that, then basically you have to say that the way things now are are the way things have always been, and this is just normal and you've got to get used to it. And uh, nothing you can do about it. It's just the way things are. But the Bible says that at one time, the world was just suffused with the presence of God in a way that was absolutely detectable. Like, you know, the electromagnetic radiation spectrum of light, uh, some of which we can see, uh, some of which we cannot see. But uh, the Bible says that at one time, just as that stuff's pouring through this room right now, there was, the presence of God was everywhere. And this massive calamity occurred, uh, this primeval disaster where we went from walking with God in the cool of the day, as it says of Adam and Eve in the garden, to a dry and weary land where there's no water, like this Mad Max post-apocalyptic world. Think of the film you love the most where it shows a world after some kind of nuclear devastation, and that is the way the Bible depicts the world we're in. And this absence of God east of Eden haunts everything. According to the Bible. 
It's always there, operating in the background, even on the most romantic life uh, night of your life. Even, even on your greatest vacation, even at your happiest meal you can ever think about, with your best friends and your family, even in the best memory you've ever had. You know, your favorite place on earth. Even in those places, the Bible says there is a, there is a spiritual barrenness that is deep and dark and pervasive and inescapable. It's inescapable. It's really fascinating if, if you read the Bible carefully, you notice that in the beginning the presence of God is very thick and heavy, and then slowly it kind of goes down, almost like radioactive decay. It just The presence of God on earth vanishes. And it's, um, it's one of those things that it seems like the authors of Scripture don't even notice is happening. I mean, there's all these different people writing the Scripture at different times. They don't necessarily even notice this is happening. But if you read, like Noah actually seems to be walking with God. And somehow he's interacting with God. Certainly Adam and Eve were. And then with Abraham, there's a few scattered conversations. It seems like he saw him. Um, that God manifested himself actually physically to Abraham. And then with Jacob, he, he wrestles with God. But then you get to Moses and there's a burning bush and a few appearances uh, in the tent or in, on Mount Sinai. And then, you know, less and less and less. And by the end of the Old Testament, it's like there's nothing there. And so I think that if that's true in David's day, if, if, uh, if the, the world of David is a dry and weary land... Uh, where there is no water, then how much more is that true in our secular age today? Because if you go to like an Arabic country today in the Middle East, they talk about God. At least they talk about God. My friend was a missionary in a a Muslim country, and he loved the fact that at least they talked about God all the time. I mean, they couldn't see God, they couldn't hear God, but they talked about God. Well, in our country, you don't even talk about God. Not out there. Maybe in here a little bit, but... Uh, T.S. Eliot called this, and this is, a, this is like almost 100 years ago he said this, he called it the wasteland, uh, an empty chapel, home only to the wind, no windows, and the door swings. And if we're really honest about it, um, I think this is what causes all the doubts we have about God's existence. I mean, I was an atheist at one time. Um, you know, there are those amongst you that are agnostic or don't believe or you don't know what you believe. But, you know, it's not really the problem of evil. Uh, it's not the fact that there are all these different religions. Um, it's not like evolution or science. Those are kind of red herrings. I think those are little distractions. What, the reason we don't really uh, believe in God very much is because we just don't see him. I mean, where is he? If a child asks their parent, where is God? It's hard to answer that question. Why well, don't I ever see him? Where are the miracles? Why, um, why can't I hear him? Why doesn't he talk to me? And that's just really hard. Those are hard questions to answer. And I, I don't understand how people who are serious about God don't feel the pain of his absence. Like, why are we not talking about that? The fact that uh, we don't experience God that much down here. You know, if everything is decent down here in, in your life, if you th- feel like things are generally pretty good, then I think that shows a, a deep absence of faith. If you're kind of content with life and God is a part of that life, and you're not thirsting and yearning and hungering the way that David was, and God often uses tragedy to put us in that place, but if you feel like things are pretty good down here and this is about the way life should be, then, uh, then you've got a problem 
In January 1994, I moved from Glencoe, Scotland, which is gorgeous in the highlands of Scotland, to Hillsborough Street uh, at North Carolina State University. If you don't know, that's, that's in Raleigh. And I traded in the glens and the locks and the waterfalls of Scotland for uh, the brickyard in front of this uh, library in North Carolina State. And I could feel the pain uh, of the loss of glory. I mean, it was almost like a physical sensation to not be able to look out and see those mountains outside of my window, and just to see brick and pavement. And um, there, was, there was a kind of a longing that I felt, an absence of, God, of glory. And um, Psalm 42 compares it to an animal dying of thirst. As the deer pants for flowing water, so my soul pants for you. And in a way, this is kind of, this can be somewhat strangely encouraging, that if you think that it, people around you, like uh, people in your small group or people in this church or people that are friends of yours or Facebook friends, if you, they're going to act like uh, often their life is, is good, the thing, things are kind of together. Um, but if you feel like everyone out there has everything together and you're messed up, then you should just know that that's not the case at all. Not even close. The, the, the happiest seeming person in the world is profoundly lonely and sad because of this song. And you know, when you go to the hospital, they ask you, uh, can you rate your scale, uh, your pain on a scale of one to 10? And if, if we're being honest, you know, if David was there, he would say somewhere between like 0.1 and 0.9 is about as good as it gets. And we're kind of fluctuating between those numbers because in this moment of his life, which is the worst moment circumstantially, he says, my problem is the absence of God. And I think he would say that when he defeated Goliath, when he was crowned king, when he married Michael. At his greatest moments of life, he's fluctuating between, you know, point one and point nine. Not much difference. It's the absence of God. It's the pain of the absence of God. I remember in 1994 when I, when I had just moved into that tiny little apartment off Hillsborough Street. And I was praying, partly because I missed the Highlands so much. And this was actually... Two years exactly after I'd become a Christian. And so that, that first glow, the honeymoon phase, your first love is kind of worn away. If you became a Christian in your adulthood, you know what I'm talking about. And I remember in the middle of praying, I just started crying and saying, I just miss you so much. I miss you so much. And there was something that I knew about you and felt about you back then, and I don't feel that now. It was kind of the way you feel on the first day of elementary school. You probably don't remember that. Some of you do. But the first day of college, maybe the first month of college, or when you're setting up on your, uh, on your own in a new city after college, but that loneliness, that homesickness and loss, we should have that about God. And that's the first point here, that we live in a world that is God-forsaken. And point two follows straight from that that uh, there is this yearning for more. If you're, if you're a kind of alive to your humanity, uh, then I think you're yearning for more. I don't know how a person could be really awake and alert to what's going on around them and not be yearning for more. It's a paradox that uh, when I became aware of how far I was from God that night in Raleigh when I was praying, that was actually one of the more joyful experiences of my life. That's why I remember it. Because the tears and the yearning, and I knew there was more than just living and dying and trying to make it through the day. And that's point two, is, um, is that we can find joy. Occasionally, 
Maybe not that frequently. Um, Paul does say rejoice in the Lord always, and I say again rejoice. But I think Paul also knew that it's not literally there every single second. But there can be joy. And that's the second point. And he says uh, in verse 1, earnestly I seek. And even that, um, there's a joy to that, isn't there? The seeking itself. There's a joy in that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who was kind of the the great writer of joy in the 20th century. C.S. Lewis says that uh, joy is not the same as pleasure. He says it's not at all the same as pleasure. That joy is never a possession, but always a desire for something longer ago or further away. It has the stab of inconsolable longing. So pleasure is something you get right now. You, you possess it. You grasp it. Joy, you can't ever quite get your hand on. Because it's always for something more, beyond. And Lewis calls it this peculiar desire that pierces us like a rapier. A peculiar desire that pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire. Or the sound of wild ducks flying overhead. The morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. It's when you feel that, uh, that longing for more, and you know this is not your home. Back in uh, high school, when I was not a believer, there was a song that I loved that had this taste of yearning. And it was um, by you 2 You've probably all heard of it. Uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I loved the title. I loved the longing in it. I didn't know what they were talking about, but... This is what uh, they say. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. But I still have not found what I'm looking for. And again, as as an atheist, I didn't know what they were talking about. But that David does know what they're talking about. He's saying I... I thirst for you. I eagerly seek you. I'm fainting for you. And the thirst, if there is a thirst, uh, it implies there is a uh, quenching of that thirst. There is this magical water that's got to be out there. And David tasted a drop of it and he wants more. Even, you know, the, the best experience we have now of joy is like that last tepid sip of water from the, the water bottle that's all crumbled up and warm and uh, your children have, have already drunk from it and there's like food particles in the bottom and that, that is about the best we can get down here. But up there, uh, there is you know, the hydro flask of crushed ice uh, where you can just hear it, the cold of it when you shake it and uh, incredibly refreshing just pouring into your throat. I remember going... Um, in these class five rapids, when I um, rafted the source of the Nile, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And this huge 14-foot waterfall, we went literally, it was, we were about to go over that. We, we luckily, we, we diverted around it, but hit another class five rapids. But it just plunges you straight into the water, and these huge waves cascade over your head. And I think of that. That is what David is thirsting for. Not a little, not a little water bottle, a little plastic water bottle. Because if we could catch a glimpse of what Moses saw uh, on Mount Sinai or what Isaiah saw in the temple, I read those passages and I just want that. What Ezekiel saw on the Kibar River or Peter 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, or Paul in the third heaven, John on the Isle of Patmos. I, I want those experiences. And David's, David saw that in the sanctuary. I, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, verse 2. And he's hungry for more. He says, I have tasted it before and I will taste it again. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, verse 5. I love that line. Uh, that's why I chose this psalm. I just love that line. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I mean, I love the analogy of food. I don't like steak with a lot of gristle, but obviously, you know, back then, that was about as good as it got for them. Uh, steak with gristle on it. They love the fat part of the steak. And so whenever the Bible talks about fat, it's talking about that, the best food you've ever had. And he's saying that my soul is going to be satisfied by you, God, with a taste that is the best thing you've ever had in your life. At Discovering Salem, we always go around and talk about our favorite food. And so meatloaf at Moselle's was mentioned this time. Uh, Cranky's Chicken Biscuit was mentioned at this time. Uh, a vegan taco at El Rancho. That one didn't really get to me, but um, <laughs> supposedly that's, that's really good too. Um, but think about whatever you love. You know, whatever you love. David is saying, uh, when you taste that thing, and obviously he's saying that food is a, one of the great pleasures, we, the most immediate pleasure we can have. And, and David is saying that God is communicating uh, his self into you in a way that can produce that same sensation. I mean, a lot of times we, we as, uh, as Presbyterians, I'm a Presbyterian, you might not all be Presbyterians, but Presbyterians can kind of uh, become a little nervous about God producing sheer physical pleasure, but I think we should pray for this. I don't know, uh, I don't think John Calvin would have been opposed to this or John Knox. I think we should yearn for, for actually God to to give us this satisfaction of our soul. I think if people experience this more, they would instantly eradicate all substance abuse, all addiction, because the desire is just so strong. David says in verse 4, I, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And this is not a metaphor like the hands of your heart. This is like this. You know, He literally lifted up his hands. Um, and you can actually do that in here. If you didn't know that, there's no uh, prohibition. You don't have to be in the shower or your car. Um, there's nothing in the directory of worship against lifting your hands, believe it or not. I talked to somebody Monday who said, um, I really wish that I was more um, free to lift up my hands in worship. I, I wish I was not so, I feel such an inhibition. And I said, that's really weird. No, I didn't say that. I said, uh, I said, I think that's a great thing to lift up your hands. And um, it is weird, but we need to be weird because we know something that the world does not know, which is that uh, there is a joy available in God that nothing in this world can satisfy. Your steadfast love is better than life. And it's interesting when he talks about the steadfast love of God, at the end of the, at the, end of the poem, he's talking about the way God protects him and watches over him. That's part of his steadfast love. Is he's always got his eye on you. And he's looking out for bullies in the playground that are going to try to mess with you. And he, he won't let that happen. His, his steadfast love for you is better than life. Better than the best food you've ever had. Better than the most pleasurable sensation you've ever felt. 
better than the best vacation you've ever been on, the most intimate experience of love you've ever had. Uh, David means that literally, that the steadfast love of God is better than anything that we could experience in this life. And it makes sense that if the absence of God is the worst thing in your life, then the presence of God will be the best thing in your life. The steadfast love is better than life. I um, remember in the 80s, in um, the late 80s, there was a series of commercials for old Milwaukee beer that always came on on Sundays during the NFL games, which I watched. And uh, I don't even think they sell that beer anymore. But it would have these guys fishing in Minnesota or uh, airboating in the Everglades or hiking in the Rockies. And they would uh, they'd get around a campfire at the end of the day. Has anybody ever seen these things? And um, they would say, fellas, it don't get any better than this. And they would raise up the old Milwaukee beer. And I used to absolutely hate those commercials. Uh, and again, I didn't have any faith, but I... Um, I just thought, that is wrong. That is not true. There's something, and I know that's, that is a, that's a blasphemy against something that I don't even know about. But David is saying uh, it is not Minnesota or the Everglades or the Rockies or for him Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor or the Sea of Galilee. David says it's in the sanctuary where I beheld your power and your glory. And you might ask, why, why the sanctuary? And uh, if you know anything about the temple of Jerusalem, what was in the center of the temple? It was the presence of God. It was uh, the, the glory cloud which rested over the Ark of the Covenant. So in the, in the Holy of Holies, in the very back of the temple, they had this Ark of the Covenant. And uh, above the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was resting and dwelling. It's almost like all the power of God had been concentrated on earth to that little space. And he was just... There, an enormous power, just kind of humming with energy right there above the Ark of the Covenant. And David is saying, that's what, um, that's where I see your power and glory, in the sanctuary. Um, and Jesus is actually, Jesus was called the, uh, the mercy seat. That's the same word that is used for the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And the reason that Jesus is called the mercy seat is because the presence of God rests over him. Uh, the way that it rests over that Ark of the Covenant. Because in both cases, the symbol is God has made this sacrifice for us. And in that sacrifice of himself, that is where his presence lies. And so whether it's the uh, Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, or it's here at uh, this place where the presence of Christ is promised, um, either way, this is where we can find...